Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Good everyone. Nice to be together on Sabbath again. Today is the 23rd day of the 10th month, 79 days from Passover. Time is fleeting. For much of the past few years, in our local study here of God's Word, we have seen quite clearly that the Word of God is a single narrative. And all pointing to, and as we've heard in the intercessory prayer, all pointing to the redemptive work of our Savior. And as we have seen, and we come to a deeper understanding of the various parts of God's Word, like prophecy and their place in Scripture, it continues to become so much more clear about how this entire book is really all about Jesus Christ. We can look, as we've talked about in recent weeks, through the lenses of the law, through the lens of the prophets, through the lens of the writings, through the lens of the Gospels, Acts, the Epistles, and Revelation. And we should see the powerful redemptive work God is doing through his son for us, his people, Israel. Last week, we took a look look into the future and we looked at the abomination of desolation. And understanding through the lens of the biblical narrative, that paradigm, took even something as frighteningly alarming as the abomination of desolation. And it shone the light of the gospel onto it where in that light, we saw that for true followers of Christ, that time won't be frightening at all. That the prophecies that we have come to sometimes be taught are scary, really aren't scary at all. That for true followers, when we come to that time, and we understand that our king has got his victory, we will think, that's all you've got. That's all you've got? Christ has won. Today, what I would like to do is go back into history. We're going to start in 1 Kings chapter 8. I'd like to go back and look into our history book a little bit as we begin the message. We're going to pick up the introduction here in 1 Kings 8. And we're going to pick it up at verse 14. Verse 14. 1 Kings 8, verse 14. Then the king turned around and blessed the whole assembly of Israel, while all the assembly of Israel was standing. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who spoke with his mouth to my father David, and with his hand has fulfilled it, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I have chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now, Solomon continues, it was in the heart of my father David to build a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, whereas it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build a temple but your son, who will come from your body, he shall also he shall build the temple for my name. So the Lord has fulfilled his word, which he spoke, and I have filled the position of my father David, and sit on the throne of Israel, as the Lord promised. And I have built a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And there I have made a place for the ark, in which is the covenant of the Lord, which he made with our fathers, and when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. So we initially hear see Solomon's looking back at his father's desire, his father's intense desire to build a house for God, to build a place for God to come and dwell with his people. And then we see very clearly Solomon reflect God's instructions to David that it wouldn't be him. It would be his son. At first glance, as you think about that, as you think about all that David did, all that he stood for. 
it sounds, it seems a little strange, perhaps, that God would not allow him to build the temple. David did so many things for God. He was a man after God's own heart. He was, was the one through whom the Abrahamic covenant would flow. And he would not get the opportunity he so desired to build a house of worship for his God. Beginning today, and over the course of a couple of messages, I would like to take a look at the story of the building of the temple. And what, I would, what we'll get to see is why Solomon, and not David, was commissioned to build it. We'll see how Solomon prepared for the job and why he prepared for the job. And ultimately, what we will come to see is how the entire story of the preparation, building, and dedication of the temple fits perfectly into the biblical narrative of the redemptive work of Christ. And as we consider Passover is just a short few months away, we will see that, again, as we talk about, even through the Hebrew Scriptures, we will see Christ in the simple building of the temple. Let's go turn back to the second chapter of 1 Kings, where we'll begin. And we'll see David's commission to Solomon. which sets the stage, sets the scene for Solomon's preparation. So we'll go back to 1 Kings 2. We'll pick it up in the first verse. Now the days of David, 1 Kings 2 verse 1, the days of David drew near that he should die. And he charged Solomon his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and prove yourself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways to keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may fulfill his word, which he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons take heed to their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, he said, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Not a surprising final words to his son. They, they sound like a lot of other final words that we see in Scripture. Moses to Joshua, Joshua to the people. But let's see where he continues. Moreover, he continues, You also know what Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me, and what he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel, to Abner the son of Ner, and Amasa the son of Jether, whom he killed, and he shed the blood of war in peacetime, and put the blood of war in his belt that was around his waist, and on his sandals that were on his feet. Therefore, do according to your wisdom. Now keep in mind, these are his last words to his son. Do according to your wisdom, and do not let his gray hair go down to the grave in peace. But show kindness to the sons of Barzillai the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table, for so they came to me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. And see, you have with you Shimei, the son of Gera, a Benjamite from Bahuriam, who cursed me with a malicious curse in the day when I went down to Mahaniam. But he came down to meet me in the Jordan, and I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man and know what you ought to do to him but bring his gray hair down to the grave with blood. That is two completely odd messages from David to Solomon in his last words. Telling him all that he needs to do to represent God and to keep the throne, to follow his law, his judgments, the precepts, all those things that we know to be true. And then in his final statement, he is telling him to hold specific people accountable that have harmed his monarchy for their actions during David's reign. That if you're going to start your reign, you had best hold a few people accountable for their actions during my reign. That is an odd, odd beginning to a term of office. We just watched a term of office change over yesterday. And we have seen the lead up and how the, the 
dysfunctional disunity that is there between the, the, two, the two factions. And consider political changeovers today. Newly elected parties, and I'm not just talking about yesterday. We see it in our own country. Newly elected parties cannot wait to get in and completely undo the work of their predecessor. And these are peaceful changes in power. That's not to talk about all the what we see on the news of, of changes in power that with, of warmongers. We saw, if you, if you could hear in the background during yesterday's swearing-in ceremonies, during some introductions, during this peaceful changeover, there were chants of lock her up, lock her up, during uh, Vice President Pence's uh, swearing-in. Giving cause for continual disunity among the people. Imagine this. Imagine God telling leaders today that if you want to get started, you go kill the top three or four people that caused, caused grief in the previous administration. You talk about the media get jumping on that. Imagine, to, imagine what happened then if it happened today. Look at what David, a man after God's own heart, in his dying words tells his son. Use your wise judgment, but your first order of business should be to execute a few people. Then a quick glance, if you take a quick glance, and we will go through this later, in chapter 2, you will see the execution of three men and the exile of a fourth. Would you believe that it has everything to do with the building of the temple, which was part of God's plan to dwell with his people, Israel? It has everything to do with that. This wasn't just a vengeful God. This has everything to do with the building of the temple. Turn back to chapter 1 of 1 Kings. I used in the title, These Were the Days of Their Lives. Those of you familiar with 80s, 90s TV will recognize that as a soap opera. We're going to go through some of the people in David's life. And it will be very clear to explain why David told Solomon what he said. We're going to start with Adonijah. We're going to start with Adonijah. Let's hear 1 Kings chapter 1. Verse 1, just to set the stage. Now David was old and advanced in years. So this is at the end of David's reign. Recall that he reigned for seven years in Hebron, 33 years in Jerusalem. So he's coming now down to the end of his reign, and he's very old. Skipping to verse 5, Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. Keep in mind what Solomon later on talked that God had said to David, that it will go through Solomon. Solomon will be the one to, to, to build the temple, your son. Here, Adonijah, his son, is saying, the son of David, is saying, I will be king, and he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. And his father, again, a parenthetical comment here, but really important, had not rebuked him at any time, saying, why have you done so? He was also very good-looking, and his mother had borne him after Absalom. Then he conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar, the priest. And they followed and helped Adonijah. So keep in mind as we're going to follow the story, we've got David's son Adonijah setting himself up to be king. And along with him, he has taken Joab and Abiathar. We'll get to those guys later. But Zadok, verse 8, the priest, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan, the prophet, and Shimei, Ray, and the mighty men who belonged to David were not with Adonijah. So we're seeing, much like we see today, a split in factions here. Someone is, is Adonijah is rising up against David and against David's wishes. And some have gone with him and some have not. Dropping down to verse 25. We won't go through the entire story. We'll just pick some highlights here for time's sake. Nathan, again, talking, uh, telling, telling David what is going on here in the background, talking about Adonijah, continues with 
what he's telling David here by saying, For he has gone down today and sacrificed oxen and fattened cattle and sheep in abundance and has invited all the king's sons and the commanders of the army and Abiathar the priest. And look, they are eating and drinking before him. And they say, Long live King Adonijah. But he has not invited me, your servant, nor Zadok the priest, nor Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, nor your servant Solomon. If this was all on the up and up, we should all be there. This is one Israel. We should all be there. We're not, we, we haven't sat out the inauguration of our own merit. We should be there and we want to be there with the king. But they haven't invited us here because something is up. Has this thing been done by my Lord, he continues the king, and you have not told your servant who should sit on the throne of my Lord, the king, after him. So we see here, King Adonijah proclaims himself king, and he has taken and has, he has used a couple of David's men, and we'll get to them later, Joab and Abiathar. Let's pause here. Let's go to First Chronicles chapter 3. This becomes important to understand who these folks are. And we'll get a recap here of David's family, and it will help shed some light on this very interesting story. First Chronicles chapter 3. In verse 1, we'll pick it up in verse 1. Now these were the sons of David who were born to him in Hebron. The firstborn was Amnon by Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, the second Daniel by Abigail, the Carmelitess, the third Absalom, the son of Makkah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur, the fourth Adonijah, who we just read about, the son of Haggith, the fifth Shephathiah by Abital, and the sixth Ithrium by his wife Eglah. These six were born to him in Hebron. There he reigned seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem he reigned 33 years. And these were born to him in Jerusalem. Shimea, not Shimei that we saw before, but Shimea, Shobab, Nathan, and Solomon, four by Bathsheba, or Bathsheba, the daughter of Amiel. And they were all, and there were Ibhar, Elshema, Eliphet, Noga, Napheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphalet, nine in all. These were all the sons of David besides the son of the concubine, sons of the concubines, and Tamar, their sister. And Tamar was actually Absalom's sister through um, Makkah. So a lot of names, but what we get from there is this. His first six sons were born to him by six different women. Then he had four sons by Bathsheba and nine other sons, plus sons of various concubines and at least a daughter. Many wives producing many sons. And we can start to see who's much like as we talked about recently in the youth studies with Ishmael and Isaac, who's really the son of promise? The son of promise became Solomon. But he was down the list. He was 10th. God doesn't always, as we heard last week, God doesn't always use the firstborn to be the son of promise. So we can start to see again how our actions can cause strife within the family unit. Let's go back to 1 Kings 1 and pick up the story of Adonijah. Who was fourth? He was fourth. 1 Kings 1. So we saw the story of Adonijah who had proclaimed himself king. And I pointed out that parenthetical uh, verse in verse 6. But it is very telling. His father had not rebuked him at any time by saying, why have you done so? And he was also very good looking. So we're writing back into, we, the writer is writing back into history. And in parentheses here, he's providing some context. He was undisciplined. And you can imagine with all of the sons by the various wives, how some discipline would sort of get away from David. It'd be next near to impossible to keep all of your children disciplined when they come from so many different homes. 
And he was good looking. So what we find here, and we'll see it play out, is this very attractive, undisciplined, know-it-all, who through political maneuvering aligns himself with Joab, who is one of the leaders of David's army, he was a military man, and Abiathar, who's a priest. And Abiathar was the great-grandson of Eli, back who uh, was the mentor of, of, of uh, Samuel. And Abiathar, for the most part, he was loyal to David and was a confidant of David. We're going to get to those guys a little later. But we see here why Adonijah rose up and rebelled. I am attractive. I have had no discipline. So I have not, there has not been guidelines here. I think I can do it all. I'm going to do it all. Let's go to talk about Joab. We hear, hear the, the uh, historical writer here tells us that he aligned himself with Joab and Abiathar. Important to see where Joab plays out in this story. Let's go back to 2 Samuel 3. And again, as we're going through these historical accounts, keep in mind we're coming to a very specific conclusion. And it all relates back to the temple and Jesus Christ. 2 Samuel chapter 3. Going a little further back in time, Joab here is a nephew of King David and is the commander in David's army. Now, there was a long war, verse 1, 2 Samuel 3, or 2 Samuel 3, verse 1. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. But David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Dropping down to verse 6. Now it was so, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. Here's a new guy by the name of Abner. Abner, as we will see here, verse 7, Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, and the, the daughter of Ai. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, why have you gone into my father's concubine? And then dropping down to verse 12, Abner sent messages on his behalf to David, saying, who is, the, who is the land? Whose is the land? Saying also, make your covenant with me, and indeed my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel to you. So what we see going on here, we don't have time to read the story from end to end, but it, we'll sort of do an abridged version here. Abner here is the cousin of Saul. He's one of Saul's cousins, and he's a commander in Saul's army. He rises to prominence, as we see here played out for us, in Saul's house and becomes one of Saul's most trusted. While Saul is losing power. So he's rising in power in a house that is losing power. It seems like, as we read there in verse 12, that he claims to have understood God's decision to have David as king. So he's aligning himself with David. He's, he's, as a leader in Saul's house, he's now aligning himself with David as king. Let's uh, continue on here. Uh, let's, verse 17. Now Abner had communicated with the elders of Israel, saying, In time past, you were seeking for David to be king over you. Then do it. So as, as he's migrating over to support David, He's now talking to the elders of Israel, who are now caught in a quandary. Do we support Saul or do we support David? Because there's this big faction, this big war going on. In times past, you were seeking for David to be king. You could see where Saul was headed. You want David, so let's do it. Let's support David. For the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and the hand of all of their enemies. And Abner also, in the hearing of, in the hearing of Benjamin, and Abner went in to speak in the hearing of David and Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel and the whole house of Benjamin. And we, you can, on your own time, continue through that story. We now migrate over to verse 22. At that moment, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid and brought much spoil with them. So Joab is now one of the leaders of David's army in this war between the houses. And what is becoming obvious is one of the leaders of Saul is migrating over to support here. So we might have an opportunity here for some unifying 
unity here or to get through this war. But Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had sent him away and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the troops that were with him had come, they told Joab, saying, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he sent him away and he has gone in peace. So while you, you might not have been there, we were there and we saw there's some, some agreement here going on between uh, Abner and David. He walked away in peace. Something, something's afoot here. Then Joab came to the king and said, what have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why is it that you sent him away and he has already gone? Surely you realize that Abner the son of Ner came to deceive you, to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you're doing. Looks here like he's protecting the king, that he might know if something is going on, that there's been some history here and we can't jump all in here uh, to what seems to be a, a, a beginning of a peace accord or someone coming over to help, help our side. This guy can't be trusted, but we'll continue looking at the story here. When Joab had gone from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, who brought him back from the well of Sirah. But David did not know it. Now when Abner had returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him privately, and there stabbed him in the stomach, not out of protection for David, so that he died for the blood of Ashael, his brother. So there was something in the background. There was something political here, something familial, that caused his hatred here. But he played it up as if he was protecting the king. Afterward, when David heard it, he said, My kingdom and I are guiltless before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. Let it rest on the head of Joab and on all his father's house, and let there never fail to be in the house of Joab one who has a discharge or is a leper, who leans on a staff or falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So that when everybody sees the house of Joab, there will be someone there afflicted. And you know what? They're not going to be healed because that is going to be a sign and a punishment because Joab was unfaithful in, in, taking, in, in his duties and killed out of malice. So that was David's curse. But more importantly, let's drop again down to verse 39. Let's go with 35. Let's grab this in context. And when all the people came to persuade David to eat food, while it was still day, David took an oath saying, God... Do so to me, and more also, if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. Now all the people took note of it, and it pleased them, since whatever the king did pleased all the people. For all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's intent to kill Abner the son of Ner. It was very clear this was done by Joab and not with any, any uh, oversight or request from David. Then the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince... And a great man has fallen this day in Israel. And I am weak though today, though anointed king. And these men, the sons of Zeruiah, are too harsh for me. The Lord shall repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. So we see David's curse on the house of Joab. But more importantly, we see David's description here of Joab and his evil, uncontrollable nature. That he is not really aligned with me, he's aligned with himself. And he, had, he has a personal vendetta and a personal issue here that he took care of. Let's jump forward in the story to 2 Samuel 13. We're introduced here in, in 2 Samuel 13 to three more of David's children. And referencing back to 1 Chronicles 3, which you don't need to turn back to, we see here Amnon, which was David's firstborn, Absalom, which was his thirdborn, and who, Scripture tells us, was the most handsome man in the kingdom. Adonijah thought he was handsome. Absalom was the most handsome man in the kingdom. He was where it was at. And his sister, Tamar, which was also Amnon's half-sister. And we won't take time to read the account here for time's sake. But what we, we do read here in chapter 13 was we read of Amnon's rape of Tamar. And subsequently, Absalom's execution of Amnon two years later. So we, you can read the account in chapter, thir in chapter 13. Amnon had feelings for Tamar. She, what you'll see down there in verse, in verse 12 
She answered him, saying, No, my brother, do not force me, for no such thing should be done in Israel. This was not something that was done by the people of God. This was not something that was done. He continued on anyways and forced himself upon her. And then you'll notice, verse 15, that such a wicked, wicked sin, he hated her now more than he ever even liked her. So at the, the point where as much as he liked her, when he, when he violated her this way, he now hated her and probably, more importantly, hated himself for it. More than he ever did like her. So we're starting to see the family here. And if we could, I thought about doing a PowerPoint and trying to put this all down. And I'll probably will recap it in the second sermon by a PowerPoint. But this is, you, it's hard to keep track of all the storylines here. This is like a soap opera. And trying to keep track of all these storylines that are happening in David's family. So two years later, Absalom kills, arranges for the death of his half-brother, Amnon. He then flees. He, he flees for three years. We were coming to the end of the account here in chapter 13, in chapter 13 that Amnon, um, verse 37, Amnon fled and went to Talmai, the, the, the son of Amuhad, king of Geshur, and David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there for three years. So he now, after killing two years, so this it's now five years since the rape, two year, uh, three years since uh, the, he executed Amnon, and he has now fled. Chapter 14, verse 19, we now pick up the story here with Joab on behalf of Absalom petitioning David to allow him to come back into the kingdom, allow him to come back. So we're in chapter 14, verse 19. So the king said, is the hand of Joab with you in all this? And the woman answered, the one who was coming on his behalf, and said, As you live, my lord, the king, no one can turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord, the king, has spoken. Second Samuel 14, continuing here in verse 19. For your servant Joab commanded me, and he put all these words in the mouth of your maidservant, to bring about this change of affairs. Your servant Joab has done this thing. But my Lord is wise, according to the wisdom of the angel of God, to know everything that is in the earth. And the king said to Joab, All right, I have granted this thing. Go therefore and bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab, Joab fell to the ground on his face and bowed himself and thanked the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, O king, in that the king has fulfilled the request of his servant. And Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. And the king said, so there's a, he, he puts a restriction here. Let him return to his own house, but do not let him see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house, but did not see the king's face. So Joab here now appeals, one of the military leaders for David, appeals on behalf of his, of his uh, exiled, self-exiled son Absalom, who killed his half-brother Amnon for raping his, his, his David's daughter Tamar. He now is appealing on his behalf to allow him to come back into the kingdom. David allows that with one restriction. Let him go to his house, but I do not want to see him. I do not want to see him. There is a reunion with David after, after the two-year restriction. There's a, a, a full, he lobbies on his behalf. We won't get into that. There was a full reunion and apparent forgiveness. Four years after this reunion where he, they actually got to meet face to face and everything was, was forgiven and, and set aside. Absalom, the most handsome man in the land, rebe- creates a rebellion himself and declares himself king. Declares himself king. We see that in, we're in chapter 15 now as we're trying to, uh, rip through the, the story here. Chapter 15, verse 10. Then Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom reigns in Hebron. And with Absalom went 200 men invited from Jerusalem, and they went along innocently and didn't know anything. So again, political maneuvering here, trying to set himself up in a rebellion. 
Later on, you will read that he, as this self-appointed king, has sexual relations with many of David's concubines, which adds a whole other uh, level to this story. 2 Samuel 18, moving, moving quickly along here in the story, we see now that at the end of this rebellion, Joab kills Absalom for his rebellion. 2 Samuel 18, verse 10. Now a certain man, uh, verse 9. Then Absalom met the servants of David. Absalom rode on a mule. The mule went under the thick boughs of a great terebinth tree, and his head caught in the terebinth. So he was left hanging between heaven and earth. So don't know what, what he was wearing or how it looked, but he somehow got caught up in the, the lower, low-hanging branches of the terebinth tree, and he's there suspended in midair. Now a certain man saw it and told Joab and said, I just saw Absalom hanging in a terebinth tree. And Joab said to the man who told him, You just saw him? And why did you not strike him down to the ground? I would have given you ten shekels of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, See, Joab here is feigning protection of the king. This is a man who's, who's rebelling against his father David, or his, his master David. We should have killed this, this, this rebellion. The man said to Joab, Though I were to receive a thousand shekels of silver in my hand, I would not raise my hand against the king's son. So David is seemingly obviously having an influence on some of his people because this, is what, this was a hallmark of David's life. You may hurt me, I'm going to leave revenge in, hand, in God's hands. Here, the servant said, you could have offered me a thousand shekels, and I'm not going to touch the king's son. I don't care that he's rebellion. That's, that's above my pay grade. It's above my purview. I'm not going to do that. Continuing, for in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, saying, beware lest anyone touches the young man Absalom. David had already reconciled. There's always a chance for reconciliation. He wanted a chance to reconcile with his son again despite the rebellion. No one's going to touch a hair on Absalom's head. Otherwise, continuing in verse 13, I would have dealt falsely against my own life, for there's nothing hidden from the king, and you yourself would have set yourself against me. If I would have done that, you'd have struck me down for going on my own accord. Then Joab said, I cannot linger with you. And he took three spears in his hand and thrust them through Absalom's heart while he was still alive in the midst of the terebinth tree. And ten young men who bore Joab's armor surrounded Absalom and struck and killed him. I'm protecting the king. I'm rising up against this rebellion. We see here that David is surrounded by men who, while seemingly loyal to him, do not have the faith of David to leave things to God. Verse 33. And we see... David's love for his son, that he saw past the rebellion. He could see and knew that God always takes care of things, and he's always taking care of things for David. He could see that. Verse 33, so the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died in your place, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. We had already reconciled once. There's always an opportunity for reconciliation. We could have saved this. If I could, if I could only take your place. If I could only take your place. This is Joab. This is the part that Joab played. This, this, trust, this mighty warrior for David, but clearly this political maneuvering that he would quash a rebellion here, but support a rebellion here. Let's move on now to Abiathar, the priest who was a great-grandson of Eli, who for the most part had been loyal and confident and was a confidant of David. 2 Samuel 14, just going back in the, the same story we were in, just to grab a couple of small details here, because it comes to play in Solomon's exile and not execution of Abiathar. 2 Samuel 14. Verse 24, the king said, so 2 Samuel 14, verse 24, and the king said, let him return to his own house, but do not let him see my face. We read that. 
So Absalom returned to his own house, but did not see the king's face. So lining that up in context there. Now in all Israel, there was no one who was praised as much as Absalom for his good looks. For the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish on him. And when he had cut the hair of his head at the end of every year, he cut it because it was heavy on him. When he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head at, the, at 200 shekels according to the king's standards. And to Absalom were born three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was born of a woman of, of beautiful appearance. I wrote the wrong scripture down. Scripture I wanted, I can't find it at this point, but the, uh, he helped carry the ark back into Jerusalem when David was, was protecting the ark. Abiathar was one of the priests that helped carry the ark. And that was very important to David. And, and it, became, it became something that helped ultimately protect Abiathar from, from execution. And 2 Samuel 19. Now, you know what? It's, it's in 15. Let's read it here. I wrote down the wrong scripture, but I just found it. 2 Samuel 15, verse 24. There was Zadok also and all the Levites with him, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God, and Abiathar went up until all the people had finished crossing from over the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city, and if I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and show me both it and his dwelling place. So Abiathar was part of a group with Zadok that helped carry the, the, the ark back and shows David's faithfulness and trust and faith in God that God God will direct. God will direct his actions. And if God is meant for this to happen, he will see that they're protected. 2 Samuel 19. Again, trying to cut through the swath of some of this story. After the death and the mourning of Absalom, verse 9, 2 Samuel 19. Now all the people were in a dispute throughout the tribes of Israel, saying, The king saved us from the hand of our enemies. He delivered us from the hand of the Philistines, and now he has fled from the land because of Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, has died in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing back the king? We supported this side of the rebellion, and he was killed. That kind of looks like God's favor here, and we should, why, why are we not going back and supporting the king? So King David said to Zadok and Abiathar the priest, Speak to the elders of Judah saying, why are you the last to bring the king back to his house, since the words of all Israel have come to the king to his very house? You are my brethren, you are my bone and my flesh. Why then are you the last to bring back the king? So we see here Abiathar, very supportive of David, very supportive of David, and very supportive and protective of the Ark of the Covenant. As a priest, he understood this. This will come into play later on in the story. As we're working our way through the story, let's go back to chapter 16 and look at this small little story of this man named Shimei. Shimei. Now, as you're turning there, recall that when we were in 1 Kings 1, going through the folks that had been supportive of Solomon, there was another man named Shimei. These are two different Shimeis. This Shimei, as we will see here, we'll read the account in verse 5. 2 Samuel 16 and verse 5. Now when David came to Bahurim, there was a man from the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera, coming from there. He came out, cursing continuously as he came. So he's from the house of Saul. Recall this is the, the culmination of this war between the houses of Saul and David. He came out cursing continuously as he came, and he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David, and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. Also Shimei said thus when he cursed, Come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man, you rogue. The Lord has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom your son. So now you are caught in your own evil because you are a bloodthirsty man. So he's, he's pronouncing this terrible curse on David and linking the 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 situation that David is in to, to perhaps his, his interpretation that God is clearly now on the side of, of, uh, of Saul and Absalom and against David. So this big curse here that, that Shimei is, is proclaiming against David. Dropping down to verse 11. 
David said to Abishai and all his servants, See how my son came from my own body, seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite, if Absalom is going to seek my life, how much more this man who's not related to me going to try to kill me? Let him alone and let him curse, for so the Lord has ordered him. It may be that the Lord will look upon my affliction and the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing this day. And as David and his men went along the road, Shimei went along the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went, threw stones at him and kicked up dust. Now the king and all the people who were with him became weary, so they refreshed themselves there. So as David is wont to do, let God deal with this. Let God deal with this. This is Shimei. Chapter 19, once Absalom's rebellion was squashed, there's an interesting account here down in verse 18 that he quickly realizes he needs to make amends and get on to some political maneuvering of his own and come out on the winning side. Verse 18, starting halfway down, Now Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king when he had crossed the Jordan. Then he said to the king, do not let my Lord impute iniquity to me or remember what wrong your servant did on that day that my Lord, the king, left Jerusalem, that the king should take it to heart. For I, your servant, know that I have sinned. Therefore, here I am, the first to come today of all of the house of Joseph to go down to meet my Lord, the king. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered and said, should not Shimei be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? And David said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should be adversaries to me today? Shall any man be put to death today in Israel? For I do not know that today I, I, for do I, for do I not know that today I am king over Israel? Therefore the king said to Shimei, you shall not die. And the king swore to him that. So we see all these moving parts, all these storylines, all these plot lines. Let's now go back to where we started to King David's death. 1 Kings chapter 2. 1 Kings chapter 2. We'll read again verse 5. We'll begin in verse 5. After David's instructions for him to remain faithful to the covenant continues moreover you know also and now we know also what Joab the son of Zeruiah did to me and what he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel to Abner the son of Ner and Amasa the son of Jathar whom he killed and he shed the blood of war in peacetime and put the blood of war on, onto the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall all around Jerusalem Meanwhile, the people sacrificed at high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. So they knew they had to worship God, but they were doing it in these places. And you recall as we walked through the, the kings, the good kings, the so-so good, the, the uh, good butt kings, and then the evil kings, that even the good kings sometimes didn't tear down the, the uh, foreign sanctuaries. We see some of that playing out here. And Solomon loved the Lord. Verse 3, walking in the statutes of his father, David, and accept, and accept that he sacrificed and burnt incense at the high places. Now when the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the high place, Solomon offered... Am I in the right spot? No, sorry, flipped over on me. Okay, back to chapter 2. Sorry about that. When I flipped the page, I flipped two pages. And he said the blood of war, we're, we're here in verse... Uh, Five, he shed the blood of war in peacetime and put the blood of war on his belt that was around his waist and on his sandals that were on his feet. Therefore, do according to your wisdom, Solomon, and do not let his gray hair go down to the grave in peace. Now we see context here. Now we're understanding why David was saying this. But show kindness to the sons of Barzillai the Gileadite and let them be among those who eat food at your table. For they came to me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. And see... You have with you Shimei, the son of Gera, a Benjamite from Bahurim, who cursed me with a malicious curse in the day that when I went to Mahanium. We just read that story. But he came down to me at the Jordan, and I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man and know what you ought to do to him. 
but bring, gray, bring his gray hair down to the grave with blood. So a lot of history here has been built up into David's last words here. And clearly his message was, you need to clean house. You need to clean house. Chapter 1, verse 52. After Adonijah's rebellion had been suppressed, the, the question came, do we kill him? Do we kill him? Solomon said, and you can add some of the color yourself as you go through, you, if you want to read that and go through it yourself, we'll just cut into, into verse 52. Solomon says, if he proves himself a worthy man, not one hair of him shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So Solomon sent them to bring him down from the altar, and he came and fell down before Solomon, King Solomon. Solomon said to him, go to your house. Solomon's message to Adonijah, if you live peaceably, because we're brothers, if you live peaceably, you can live. But live peaceably. Understand that this kingship was, was through David and is from God. If you live peaceably, you will live. Chapter 2, verse 13. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. So we already start to see a little political maneuvering here. Not going to go directly to Solomon. We're going to go through his mom. She said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably. Moreover, he said, I have something to say to you. She said, say it. He said, you know that the kingdom was mine. So he's already, he hasn't lost the bitterness here. You know the kingdom was mine. Doesn't understand, doesn't buy into the concept that it had always been Solomon's because that was God's directive. You know the kingdom is mine. And all Israel had set their expectations on me. Everyone wanted me to be king. Everyone wanted it. That I should reign. However, the kingdom has been turned over and has been taken out of my hands, in essence, and has become my brothers. For it was his from the Lord. Everybody knows it should have been me, but God gave it to him. But it still, you know, it still should have been mine. It was still mine. Please speak, verse 17, to King Solomon, for he will not refuse you, that he may give me Abishag the Shunammite as wife. You'll recall that name. That was the, the young girl that was used to warm David when he got so old and so cold. Uh, you can read that at the first part of 1 Kings 1. But he was basically here saying, listen, I lost the kingship. I at least deserve to marry the woman that I would like to marry. So please give her to me. Please give her to me. Clearly, he's not over his perception that he, the, that he lost the kingdom. And he's asking for a specific wife, wife from David's house because it is owed to him for the loss of his reign. Verse 22. King Solomon answered and said to his mother, Now why do you ask for Abishag, the Shunammite, for Adonijah? Are you going to ask for the kingdom for him too? For he is my older brother. I'm younger than him. He's going to say that he deserves the kingdom because he is older. King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, May God do so to me and more also if Adonijah has not spoken this word against his own life. Now, therefore, as the Lord lives, who has confirmed me and set me on the throne of David, my father, and who has established a house for me, as promised, Adonijah shall be put to death. I gave him a chance. I told him to live peaceably. He didn't. He is a threat to the throne of God. He must be put to death. So King Solomon sent by the hand of Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he struck him down and died. This will never end, is what Solomon is saying. He's starting here. He didn't accept it. He's starting here asking for a wife. What's he going to ask for? The kingship, the king back, the kingship back? Enough is enough. I gave him a chance. He must be put to death. Verse 26. And Abiathar, the priest, remember he was a confidant of David's, and he did some good things, but he got misaligned here in this rebellion with Adonijah. Abiathar the priest, the king, said, and to Abiathar the priest, the king said, Go to Anaboth, to your own fields, for you are deserving of death. You deserve death because of this rebellion. But I will not put you to death at this, at this time, because you carried the ark of the, the Lord God before my father David, and because you were afflicted every time my father was afflicted. 
you were a good servant of my father. And I will not put you to death because for this one time, you aligned yourself in the, with the wrong rebellion. So Solomon removed Abiathar from being priest to the Lord, that he might fulfill the word of the Lord, which he spoke concerning the house of Eli at Shiloh. You can no longer be trusted to be my spiritual advisor, but you served my father well, and you helped us preserve the Ark of the Covenant. You will be exiled, but you will not be executed. Verse 28. The news came to Joab, for Joab had defected to Adonijah, though he had not defected to Absalom. That's interesting commentary as it was being written back in there. We can see here that it wasn't about principle. It was about power. He defected here, but he didn't defect here. So there's some, some, a little bit of commentary there. So Joab fled to the tabernacle of the Lord and took hold of the horns of the altar. And King Solomon was told, Joab has fled to the tabernacle of the Lord. There he is by the altar. Solomon sent Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, saying, Go strike him down. So Benaiah went to the tabernacle of the Lord and said to him, Thus says the king, Come out. And he said, No, but I will die here. Benaiah brought back word to the king, saying, Thus said Joab, and thus answered me. The king said to him, Do as he has said, and strike him down and bury him, that you may take away from me and from the house of my father the innocent blood with which Joab shed. So the Lord will return his blood on his head, because he struck down two men more righteous and better than he, and killed them with the sword, Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa, the son of Jether, the commander of the army of Judah. Though my father David did not know it, their blood shall therefore return upon, to return upon the head of Joab and upon the head of his descendants forever. But upon David and his descendants, upon his house and his throne, there shall be peace forever. He had no moral compass. No moral compass. He will, resort, he will support certain rebellions if he feels that he can benefit, but he cannot be trusted. He can no longer be trusted. And he is responsible for murder in this political maneuvering. He must be exiled. He must be executed. He must be put to death were the decision of Solomon. And verse 36. Shimei. The king sent and called for Shimei and said to him, Build yourself a house in Jerusalem and dwell there, and do not go out from there anywhere. For it shall be on the day you go out and cross the brook Kidron, know for your certain that you shall surely die and your blood shall be on your own head. I'm going to give you a chance. You go and build yourself a house, but you're under house arrest. And do not leave. You may live peaceably within your house, and you may, you may have your life. If you leave, you will be put to death. Sounds harsh. But looking back on all of this rebellion, we can see why that was important. Verse 44, as we, if you continue down and read the story, he, a couple of years later, he had two slaves that ran away. So he goes to retrieve his slaves and leaves his house. Verse 44. The king said, moreover, to Shimei, you know, as your heart acknowledges, all the wickedness that you did to my father David. Therefore, the Lord will return your wickedness on your own head. But King Solomon shall be blessed, and the throne of David shall be established forever shall be established before the Lord forever. So king, the king commanded Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he went down and struck him down, and he died. Thus the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. There would have been other ways he could have sought out his slaves. If, he had, if two slaves had run away, there were others that could have gone looking for him. The command from God's king was, you do not leave your house. This is a, this is a mercy thing here. I've given you a chance. You should be put to death, but I'm going to give you a chance. Do not leave your house. Two years pass, he finds an excuse, a loophole. If some, he feels that, you know, my slaves have gone, I'm going to go look for them. No, let's find another way, because this is what was commanded. And we see here this phrase at the end of chapter 2, thus the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. That is a critical part to the story. Second Samuel 23, we're coming to the end here. Second Samuel 23. David's life was a life of conflict. And that is made clear here in another passage, one, another, another of his 
last words. Thus, chapter 23, verse 1, Thus says David, the son of Jesse, Thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, and the sweetest psalmist of Israel. Listen to how he describes his God here. This is what I want to get to. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spoke to me, who rules over men. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Although my house is not so with God, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered and ordered in all things and secure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not make it increase? But the sons of rebellion shall all be as thorns thrust away, because they cannot take, be taken with hands. But the man who touches them must be armed with the iron and shaft of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in their place. David's life was a life of conflict, and that is made clear here. He views God, rightly so, but through his paradigm, as his protector, his ruler, his rock of salvation, his security. He lived a life of conflict, of torment, of war, and continuous strife from without and within. And he viewed his God properly that way, that his God and we see other passages where he had it, where he saw God in, in other lights. But here, here, as he's describing God, his rock, who rules in a just way, who has, is ordered in all things. All these little descriptions here we can see from David's paradigm. He lived a life of conflict, torment, war, and continuous strife. Let's now go to the scripture reading that was read earlier, 1 Kings 5. We will close here. First Kings five. Verse two. Then Solomon now oh, let's verse one. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon, because he had heard that they had anointed him king in the place of his father, for Hiram had always loved David. Then Solomon sent to Hiram, saying, You know how my father David could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the wars which were fought against him on every side until the Lord put his foes under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor evil occurrence. It is a time of peace. All of the strife, all of those who were adversarial, all of those who couldn't be trusted, all those who were part of the rebellion have either died or been put to death or have been exiled. And God has given Solomon a time of peace. Behold, I propose to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. As the Lord spoke to my father David, saying, Your son whom I will set on your throne in your place, he shall build the house for my name. He shall build the house of my name. And as we read, he has given him rest on every side. No adversaries, no no evil occurrences, a time that God has granted for him to build a house of worship, build a dwelling place for God, for Israel. Now therefore, command that they cut down cedars for me from Lebanon, And my servants will be with your servants. We'll work together on this. And I will pay your wages for your servants according to whatever you say. Whatever whatever it takes, we will build a house for the Lord. I need your help. You're a friend of my father's. You can help me out. Whatever it is that you need, whatever it is that you need to be paid, we'll do this because we need to build a house for God. He has given us time. He's taken away all the evil. He's taken away all the adversaries. This is the time to build the house for God to dwell in. For you know there is none among us who has the skill to cut timber like the Sidonians. We won't be good. We will not. We do not have the talent to build the temple the way you you can help us build it. So let's do this together. David was a man after God's own heart. He was a mighty man of valor, a man who let God 
seek his own revenge against David's enemies. More often than not, he let an enemy off the hook and left him in God's hands. He prayed for those who persecuted him, prayed for them, and he mourned their deaths. But he was a man of war. He was a man of war. He had to be. God's people needed a man of war to lead them at this time. He was a faithful man of God, a man after his own heart, but he was a man of war. And God wanted a man of peace to build the place of worship. Why? This is now where we will connect this to the redemptive work of Christ. And we will do that next time. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.